Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. This week I'm speaking to debut author Hafsa Zayan. Hafsa's book, We're All Birds of Uganda, was published early last year and has just been released into paperback. One of the breakout debuts of 2021, it was a BBC Radio 4 book at bedtime and a book club pick for both the BBC Radio 2 and the Sky Book Show. The book has attracted a lot of well-deserved praise since winning the inaugural Murky Books New Writers Prize, chosen by a panel of judges, including Stormzy. Hafsa, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello, thanks for having me. Hi, it's exciting to have you here today. So I'd like to start off, as I do with all my guests, by going back to your childhood, if you don't mind. Can you just tell me where you grew up and what life was like? Yeah, so I was born in England, but when I was two, we moved to Saudi Arabia. I was there for a couple of years, came back to England, went to America, lived there for quite a few years, came back to England, lived in the east of the country, then moved to the west of the country. And then about a decade ago, I moved to London, and that's where I've been ever since. Wow, you moved around a lot as a kid. Was that something to do with your parents' jobs? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So they're they're actually both doctors, but they trained and qualified in Nigeria and in order to kind of complete all the things that they needed to complete in order to be able to practice in this country. They had to do various training, and my mum was an obstetrician, and she took up the post in Saudi to do women's health things, and she then trained as a a general practitioner in, in the States. So... Yeah, it was all it was all job related. Sounds good though. Get to see a lot of the world when you're young, right? That's cool. Yeah, you become very um it's it's easy to say goodbye to people and very easy to say hello as well. So became good at making friends and leaving friends. <laughs> oh makes me happy in one way and a little bit sad in another. Mm. <laughs> so um did you read a lot as a child? Oh, so much. So, so, so much. I mean, books were my constant companion because they never left my side. I mean, I could take them with me wherever I went. I didn't have to sort of say goodbye. And I think libraries were also my kind of go-to place. So I would always find the local library and that's where my mum would deposit myself and my sister. And we would um, kind of just spend the day there while she went about doing her things. And so I grew up reading far more than I read now, unfortunately, just because of the pressures of you know adult life. But um, I loved reading as a child. Yeah, it's, I keep hearing time and time again, the, the magic of the library is a theme that I just hear all the time. You know, for all of us that growing up and were into books, it's, that was that like, magical place that you could go and find this whole wealth of stuff. Hmm. What was the first book you remember reading? Gosh, that's, that's quite a hard one. I mean, there must have been small board books that I read when I was sort of four or five. But I have to say, at the age of four, I was, I was living in the States and um, I was gifted a book by one of my school teachers called The Stranger by Chris Van Alsberg. He wrote Jumanji and and The Polar Express. And this is another one of his novels. I think he wrote this one afterwards. And it's illustrated by him as well. It's such beautiful pictures. It's essentially a story about seasons changing. And the the titular character, The Stranger, happens upon this farm. And he kind of has no recollection of who he is. And and the family who live at the farm take him in. Um, And he kind of brings things with him, which are reminiscent of, of winter. So, you know, when he blows on his soup when they're having dinner 
that the mother in the family feels a, a cold wind on her back, that kind of thing. So it, it's a little bit magical realism, um, but it's beautifully illustrated. And um, I used to like to sort of sketch and draw and things like that as well. So I, I would read this book and then sort of lie on my stomach and, and sketch out some of the pictures that were in the book as well. And it just it's just stayed with me. I've still got it. I managed to bring it with me from you know the age of four and me being able to keep a book from my childhood is quite a big <laughs> feat because we moved so much. So, um, yeah, that one really stayed with me. As I say, it obviously meant quite a lot to you. I love the fact that you then translated that into your own creativity by drawing. So you, you were obviously drawing a lot as a child. Did you like to write as a child or was that something that came later? Oh, no, I wrote a lot as a child as well. So uh, with illustrated books, I'd, I'd start copying the pictures from the books. And with anything that I liked that I found kind of inspiring, I'd, I'd take up kind of the author's voice and do a little bit of fan fiction or write short stories. Back in those days, we didn't have laptops. I just had pen and paper and we had a family computer. And I used to um, write these little stories into little notepads and then give them to my mom and ask her to type them up on the computer for me, the family computer. And I'd sit there just watching her being like, come on, come on, like finish it. Um, so yeah, I, I was really into it. And I think, you know, at that age, when, when you're really enjoying a piece of, of creative work, your mind is so limitless at that stage. You just think, well, I can replicate this and you try. And so yes, I did tons of writing when I was a kid. It's funny what you say about children's imagination kind of being limitless. I, I went on this course some years ago in my kind of former life. And I remember them asking us to list these 10 things, like the most obscure things you can think of. And we all came up with these, what we thought were really wacky ideas. And he went on to the next slide and he predicted every single one of them. And then the guy running the course, he said that he'd asked the same question about a bunch of junior age children and the stuff they came out with was so off the wall. And it really highlights, I remember that really sticking with me, the fact that, you know, as kids, anything's possible, isn't it? But it's, it's, I don't know when it happens that at some point the reality kind of kicks in a bit with adults and people find it more difficult to go into different realms. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the kind of bounds of your imagination at that stage, you just think of the most wacky things and then you get older and all your writing kind of turns into, you know, things that have happened in your lived experiences. Like your imagination's just become quite constrained and you're suddenly thinking, oh, well, I saw that happen or I read about this or, you know, I experienced this and then that's what you want to write about instead. And one thing my mum said to me when I was younger, she was like, oh, you won't be able to write until you've lived a bit, Hafsa. But at that stage, I was writing as if I'd lived a thousand lives already, you know, and, and, you're, and you're right. It's, it's a strange kind of point at which you lose that and you become more grounded in, in the world. Yeah. Um, you were obviously creative as a child and you, like you say, you moved around quite a lot, but you actually went on and studied law at university. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So you went to Cambridge University. Was that a conscious decision that you knew you wanted to get into law or was that just a subject that appealed to you at the time? I don't think that I thought too much about my career at the time that I thought about studying law. I mean, I liked the idea of studying the law from like kind of just a justice perspective. And I think you're, you're quite idealistic at that age. And you don't really think too much, or at least I didn't think that much. Probably quite naive of me, and maybe kids these days do think about this kind of stuff, but I didn't. I just thought, oh, well, I really want to learn about the justice system, and I want to learn about justice and human rights and, you know, the environmental laws and things like that. I, I was really into all of that. Like, so that's why I, I chose to study law. I didn't think too much about what kind of career I would end up having afterwards, but of course it's, it's fairly vocational, and you can go so almost straight into a career after having studied a law degree so that is what happened made sense but you did a master's degree as well didn't you, you went to Oxford did you do that straight after your undergrad yes yes I did yeah I actually I really really enjoyed the study of the law and so when it came to you know next steps I quite wanted to continue with education for a bit longer before I put my foot down and started working 
from Reality Bites. And these days you're an international dispute resolution lawyer, is that correct? Yes, yes I am. What is that what does your job involve exactly? I mean that sounds pretty high powered glamorous <laughs> but it's probably not as glamorous as suits <laughs> no no I so I do disputes I'm kind of the person who looks somebody comes to you they tell you the facts you construct essentially a story you apply the law to the facts and then you go and try and convince the judges or the tribunal or the panel whoever's going to be arbitrating the dispute you try and convince them that your story is the right one and it's on the right side of the law so in many ways, those skills are fairly transferable into writing stories. But I, I write stories for my, for my day job, but just um, <clears throat> in a kind of more technical manner. But yeah, that's, that's what I do. So I do a mix of court work and also private dispute resolution, which doesn't involve the public court system, but involves you know, independent arbitrators who decide the dispute but aren't chosen based on the public system. That sounds like you've probably got a pretty full plate with your job, as it is. So what was it that made you decide to start putting pen to paper with the book that then became your first book, We Are All Birds of Uganda? I mean, how did that come about? So that came about as a result of the competition. So I hadn't written anything for a long time. I actually wrote a, a short children's novel when I was at university, you know, in the summer holidays at one point, which I sent off to a few agents, but they were, all rejected it. And then I just never really thought about writing again after that but this com- I mean I was really into Stormzy's music and I really loved what he was doing and you know the space that he was creating these scholarships and uh, starting these initiatives like like murky books and it was all just stuff that was kind of giving back to the community but more not typical things that you would expect of a grime rapper but hey ho <laughs> um he was a bit different and and I was following him and I was watching what he was doing and I you know signed up to the mailing list and things for murky and one day I just got an email saying we've launched this sort of open submission competition if you want to write 2,500 words you can you can enter and I thought well I used to write I loved writing like I like him I like what he's doing the tagline for the competition was tell stories that aren't being told and so I thought oh well I could come up with an idea and just write a couple of thousand words no problem and so that's how it all started. I hadn't realised you'd actually written it specifically for the competition. I'd assumed yeah. that you'd had it and it was just something you then, oh, that's fantastic. And there was, I think it was, what, 1,500 entries or something. And then obviously you were named as the new writer. You were you given the new writer's prize. And that happened in 2019. Your debut novel, which was the result of that, was published in January 2021. So what happened between those two things well, I wrote the book. <laughs> that, that was the first thing that happened. <laughs> I wrote the book because but at the time that I won the competition, I, I had about 20,000 words. So they shortlisted some of the entrants um, and then you had to sort of submit basically your full manuscript. I did not have a full manuscript. I just submitted as much as I could possibly write in the course of seven days. And so then I had 20,000 words. So I wasn't expecting to win at all because I kind of assumed that everybody else would have, you know, pre-existing novels that they kind of refined for the competition. But when I did win, much to my sort of amazement and, and surprise, I then had to write the novel. So I wrote the novel. And the intention at the time was to publish it in, in 2020 in the summer, but COVID hit and it was also unprecedented in the publishing world. The, the publication was delayed to 2021. Then I had quite a long period of time where the book had already been written. I wasn't really sure that I wanted to revise it too much. I kind of went back and forth editing it, bits and pieces here and there, and then eventually it was published in, in January 2021. Mm. So I think it was definitely a good thing from your standpoint that it was pushed because I think a lot of the books that were published throughout 2020 really suffered as a result. That said, your book was published in January 2021, which was not a great time anyway. You know, it was the beginning of the third lockdown, which mm. uh, arguably the most depressing lockdown of the lot. 
what was that like for you getting that out into public domain but at a point where you couldn't really go out and do anything about it yeah so it was interesting because I think at the time that it was pushed back of course we all thought well this will all be over in a year's time and you know we'll be publishing a book not in a lockdown and of course by the time it all came around there was a conversation about should we delay this again but then there was also a conversation about how long will this go on for we just don't know so I mean by that point well I think everyone was quite well seasoned like they knew what to expect and so we were all versed in kind of pandemic publishing how you do it um what you do how you go about with retailing you know when you can't sort of show it in a shop floor and you know how to use the online space effectively to kind of market it and, and sell it so I think at that point because I, I'm, I'm really glad it wasn't published in the first in the first lockdown I mean at that point you know there was only one thing on everybody's mind we were all talking about one thing and it was a pandemic by the time the third lockdown came around I think a lot of people were looking for things to talk about and discuss and do that were not the pandemic um, and so I think it did open up um, you know People were more interested in reading and listening to podcasts and, and doing all these things that they may may not have wanted to do so much in, in the first round. But I was incredibly well supported, incredibly well supported, not just by Murky and Penguin, but by family and friends and just the wider sort of online community. I felt like it couldn't have gone better, the publication and, and the launch. And I had a wonderful experience. I mean, everything with this book for me has been a massive bonus. It's not sort of my day job. Winning a competition was a total like surprise and amazing kind of opportunity. And so to have the chance to publish it, even in a lockdown, to me was just still like a total dream come true because it was, it was always my dream to have a book, you know? So to actually see it get published and see the kind of what it looked like in, in, in a hard copy was just really, I don't know, overwhelming, I guess. Oh, I bet. I can't even imagine what it must feel like. Let's actually talk about the book. So it's a dual time frame novel based in Uganda and in present day London. So Uganda in the past and present day London. Give us the elevator pitch. Tell us about the book. Yeah. So the book, as you say, it's dual narrative. It follows two male protagonists. The one who's set in modern day London. He's a uh, lawyer. He is a second generation Ugandan Asian immigrant. So his parents uh, migrated from Uganda to England. He was born and has lived in England his entire life. The story with him, it really just follows his kind of awakening um, as a person and his growth. It's, it's kind of a bit of a character development and discovery. Well, he takes this sort of, sort of journey along the book to find out a little bit more about who he is. The second narrative, which is woven into the modern day narrative eventually, it's epistolary. So it's a series of letters written by a Ugandan Asian immigrant living in Uganda. So he, he was, he, generations of his family had lived in Uganda, migrated over, you know, with the intention of staying there permanently. And he, he's kind of, you know, been born there. He, he's lived in this community, this um, Indian community there. And it charts the story of basically Uganda gaining independence, the rise of Idi Amin and the um, consequent expulsion of uh, Ugandan Asians basically to wherever would take them. And in our case, England. Um, so it's twice migration. They migrated once from India to East Africa and then from East Africa on to England again. It covers a whole bunch of different themes, your book. I really, and I, I think it's in, inherently readable. I mean, what I really like about it is even though you're switching between the two different time frames, and there's clearly a different writing style between those two. It's like you say, the historical are based in letter form. It just it follows very naturally. It follows very well. What was your inspiration behind the book? So the idea, I and mean, because the, the Murky Books tagline was tell stories that aren't being told, you know, my husband is Ugandan Asian. 
And when I met him, I didn't know anything about the story of the of the Ugandan Asian expulsion. And I think a lot of people in my generation just the story bypasses them completely if they don't know anyone who's from that background specifically. Of course, my parents' generation, they all knew it was a huge international story at the time. It's all over the media. You know, effectively, these were like international refugees. They had nowhere to go in, in many cases. But I didn't know anything about it. And I just thought it was a really fascinating piece of British colonial history that had been completely missed out in, in, in being told in schools or just generally like we, we had no knowledge of this because of course Uganda was a was a British protectorate and India was of course a, an ex-British colony and, and a lot of the Ugandan Asian Indians that were living in Uganda at the time had British passports so when Idi Amin decided to uh, expel them the natural place for them to go was was Britain and so you know we, we've got this huge diaspora living in this country living you know, scattered all across the world uh, because Britain didn't take everyone. Mm-hmm. And there, there are so many people. And since, since writing the book, some of my friends who I just thought were Asian, I've found out are now actually Ugandan Asian. And it's just something that we'd never discussed before. Oh, my goodness. Um, or, oh, you know, my, my dad, he's actually um, Kenyan or Tanzanian or Ugandan. East Africa, it's all, it's, all, it's all the same sort of story. But Uganda was the sort of most extreme form of kind of decree. Get out of this country within 90 days. Kenya and Tanzania had exclusionary policies that forced a lot of Asians to, to migrate, but it, it wasn't as extreme as the Ugandan decree, which is why I decided to focus on the story of Uganda. But yeah, it, then you just suddenly realize, actually, you, you do know people, but you just didn't know the story because nobody talked about it. So that, to me, it was just uh, fascinating and something that I really thought should be talked about. I love books like this where you actually, you know, historical fiction, basically, where you learn something by reading it, but it's not you know, you're not sitting reading a textbook, are you? You're actually learning in a, in a fictional context. It's one of my favourite genres because I do think, you know, things like The Beekeeper of Aleppo and books along those lines, there's, there's all these things that have happened. And like you say, it happened in your lifetime or just before your lifetime. And, and for some reason, it's not been forefront of history. It's constant education, but in a different way. I love it. So you were working, obviously, when you were writing this book, as you say, you're still working now as a, as a full-time. How did you fit this into your day-to-day life? With much difficulty, <laughs> to be honest, with much difficulty. I wrote on weekends, in the evenings, early in the morning before I went to work. And I mean, many evenings I would be working until sort of 10 or 11 in the evening anyway. So I would need to come home and like start writing it about, I don't know, half past 11, midnight, write for a couple of hours, finish at 2 a.m., get up at like 6 a.m. I mean, it was it was basically six months of hell because I did it all in about six months. I, t- I took some annual leave. I went to Uganda. I wrote quite a bit of a novel there. So yeah, I just squeezed it in really. You know, I made some sacrifices. I didn't have much of a social life at that point. Didn't see many of my family or friends, but it was such a concrete end goal in mind. Um, and I was so motivated yeah. to do it that as difficult as it was, it was it was something that I just felt like I, well, I needed to, I mean, I was legally obliged as well. I'd signed a contract saying I was going to do it, but um, that, that's just the lawyer in me speaking. But I, I was, I, you know, as hard as it was, there was never a time where I sat down and thought, oh, I just I can't be bothered. And the great thing about writing something like this is because it's not my personal story. Um, there was so much research involved. And of course, you know, when you're writing creative, creative, creatively, you, you do get writer's block. There are days where you just sit down and just it's not coming out and the juices are not flowing. You can't put it to paper. And But one, wonderfully with this book, because there was so much reading I had to do, any time I had writer's block, I could just read instead. Mm. Um, and I would often spend like, you know, if I had a weekend, if I had sort of 10 hours on a Saturday and 10 hours on a Sunday, I would spend eight hours on a Saturday reading for the purposes of writing the Hassan chapters and then two hours writing 
And then I'd spend the Sunday just writing Samir. Because Samir is, you know, more you know, contemporary life. Like I can I can relate to that and, and write more easily without having to research so much. But yeah, so that, that was helpful and good. So obviously the book was published and you've had, you know, amazing success and brilliant reviews, not only from the papers, but also from fellow authors. You've had accolades from authors such as Mallory Blackman. You got a great review from the Times. I bet that must have just been pretty bonkers to start getting people like that, you know, singing your praises. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, re- I remember because the prize itself was presented by Stormzy and Mallory Blackman. So the winner was presented this prize at the um, sort of Penguin's like annual showcase or whatever it's called. It was the Palladium, right? Yeah, the Palladium, exactly. And so I was just in shock that I was on a stage with Stormzy and Mallory Blackman. It was just, it was like a dream. It was really like a dream. I had to pinch myself. I was just so elated. And, just, I, and I still think even nowadays, like I wake up sometimes and I'm like, did I actually write that book? But I have to like go downstairs and check and it's like, yes, it's there. It exists. It wasn't a dream. It's definitely here. Definitely here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Got it. So these days you live in London and you have done for the last 10 years. Do you travel a lot? I mean, obviously at the moment, the last couple of years, maybe not, but do you travel a lot with your work? Because you, you do an international cases, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So I, I do. I mean, I have clients across Africa, in the cis regions, Russia, uh, although I've not been to Russia with work. But yeah, there is, or there was, I should say, a lot of travel involved with work. And I travel just generally for enjoyment anyway. But of course, you know, with the pandemic and everything, that's been fairly restricted. Yeah, I was going to say, so how has the coronavirus pandemic impacted you and your friends and family, like personally and professionally? Yeah, so interestingly, so I sort of stopped working from the office. You know, we were all told to go home and we did that and sort of set up our home offices. At that time, I I didn't realise I wouldn't be back there for two years because I ended up getting pregnant and, and having a baby. Oh, and pregnant. so, yeah, and so, so I, I'm actually still on maternity leave now. And, you know, I sort of finished work actually like, took my maternity leave one day before my due date. So I was very heavily pregnant by the end of my working and I was in the midst of two herrings and it was all very mental, but that's just how I <laughs> how I thrive, I should say. <laughs> but um, I think I've been incredibly fortunate with the pandemic because having a baby in a pandemic is very challenging. It can be quite difficult, but because my daughter was born in April last year, we were out of kind of the woods at that point. And I have some friends who who'd had children born in sort of April, May, June of 2020. And that was incredibly hard. But I was very fortunate because I think I've spent the past year of my life in a lockdown. So having a baby didn't change too much for me. I think if I had been doing loads of traveling and going out loads and having all the kind of fun that I might have had had there not, not been a pandemic, and then I'd suddenly had a baby and realized... I just have to be at home all the time with this child and, and I can't do things like even go to the cinema anymore. That would have been quite a, a culture shock for me. But as it was, I'd already stopped doing all those things. So I basically <laughs> prepped myself the year before the baby was actually born. And so, and then, you know, when, when, when she came, it was actually, um, you know, the restrictions weren't too horrific and it was summer. And so we could still do things like go out for long walks and meet people and things like that. And so it worked out fairly well, I think, in terms of or family planning um, <laughs> but yeah so I was fortunate in that sense but you know my family my, my husband's family it's been difficult to see them and, and things like that and some of my extended family who live abroad haven't obviously seen them at all and I've lost grandparents over the pandemic I've lost aunties and, and that's been really really difficult especially because I don't live in this country and it's just then meant that we haven't been able to really have the closure that we wanted to have because we haven't been able to travel to see them so yeah. yeah, it's been a bonkers time. I'm really sorry to hear that you lost some family members. But 
really lovely that you've got a, a new little baby girl. Though not so new now, I guess, and then coming up for a year from what you've just said. So I guess I probably know the answer to this, given what you've just said. But um, have you found much time to be able to read in the last year? Or has it been all work? Or have you actually been able to kind of take some time for you? So in the first year or the first wave of the pandemic, I really struggled to read. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I've, I've heard different people have different approaches to this. Some people said I just got lost in worlds and I just loved reading. And it really helped me through that. But I actually really struggled to concentrate. Everything was so raw and so fresh and so devastating. I just felt too detached to be able to engage fully in any fiction, which fiction is the world, you know, the worlds that I escape into. And I just couldn't, I couldn't do, I mean, I couldn't even watch TV for a long period of time. So the first year I wasn't really reading much at all. I actually started listening to podcasts in that year, which I hadn't really done before. And that I found a lot easier. Mm-hmm. You know, you were allowed to go for a long walk and I might pop a podcast in and go for a long walk and, and just listen. And, and I found that really nice. I think because, you know, people on podcasts are just talking to you on such a human level and you just, it's like having a conversation with someone when you're not having to speak. Yeah. And, and that was really nice. Oh, and the, the best part of it was that you weren't having to speak, actually. After all the Zooms, you just, you just didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, no screens. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. But I think in, in the second wave of the pandemic, was sort of after the third lockdown, by the time that we hit that stage, like I said earlier, I was more interested by this point in engaging in stuff that would take me away from thinking about the pandemic or the losses and the sickness and everything. And so I did start reading a little bit more. And I think since my daughter's been born, I've probably read like two or three books sparsely in the gaps that I can. It's quite hard. She's quite demanding. <laughs> <laughs> She's a small human. That's good that you managed to get some in. What was the last book you read? So I most recently read Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. What did you think of it? I really loved it. So it's interesting because I was really undecided as I was reading it. I was like, oh God, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about the way that she's describing how we feel, like how women feel like women kind of thing. And I, I was very ambivalent. And then I kind of kept reading, kept reading. And I was like, this is actually so funny and so engaging. It's actually a little bit satirical. And I really like this. And by the end of it, I was just, I loved it. Mm-hmm. You know, I read a few interviews with her afterwards. And I like to understand the psyche of the author after I've read a book. And I, you know, I'd never read anything like that before. And I found it massively educational as well. Mm-hmm. There was so much that I didn't know about the topics that she brings up in the book. I mean, it's not just about trans people at all. You know, there's just, there's so many things in that book that I didn't really know much about. And so I did a little bit of research around some of the words that I'd not heard before, for example, and just looked her up a little bit more. And I, I just, I thought it was great. I thought it was a great book. Yeah, it's, it's, it, like I say, it's touching a lot of very relevant issues, but written just in a really accessible way. Yeah, I really liked her writing style. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Keeps you engaged again. Do you always have one book on the go? Or are you someone that can have multiple books? Are you someone that has to focus multiple. on Multiple. Yeah? Multiple, yeah, absolutely multiple. Because quite often I will start a book and then I'll be gifted another book or I'll be asked to read another book or I'll you know, there's an offer on the Kindle. <laughs> so I'll just buy another book because it's only a pound. And then I'll just start reading that one when I have like, a, you know, five minutes. And so then I'll, I'll be dipping in and out of like three or four books at the same time. It's funny. Some people really just can't do that. Whereas others, I'm, I'm in your camp. I, I always have multiple things going on. I like to have the variety and a mix of fiction and nonfic. So being a bookseller, I have a theory that everybody that reads has got some kind of book 
a book or maybe a group of books that has had quite a major impact on them. And this could be professionally, it could be personally, but I just think that that's the case. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what book is it? I don't, I don't know if I have sort of, you know, a book that I think most books or a lot of books change the way I think. Um, and, you know, for example, Detransition Baby, I, I just didn't know about that world in, in really like any level of detail. What I thought I knew, you know, that book sort of subverted my expectations and things. So a lot of books change the way that I think. And that's the beauty of, of books and particularly, you know, nonfiction as well, but particularly with fiction, because, you know, fiction's there to kind of open up your mind and make you think in ways that you haven't really thought before. And you're not reading what the author thinks, you're reading the characters that the author has, has created. And so you've got that kind of extra layer there, that extra level of, of analysis that you can kind of engage, like what's the author trying to achieve here? with this character. So I I think all books are like that. But I think I have to say one of the books that I read in my early 20s that that did really, really stay with me and stick with me was Things Fall Apart mm-hmm. by Chinua Chabi. I read that having read things like Heart of Darkness at school and, and never really having read anything by someone who was African and not just African, but Nigerian, which is why I'm half Nigerian. And you know, I've, I've read half of the Yellow Sun and, and I've read a, a few pieces of kind of contemporary fiction written by by Nigerian authors, but I was so blown away by things fall apart. And because I think because of the subject matter and the way in which, you know, this kind of the tragedy and the loss and the way that it ends, it just really, really sticks with you. I think a powerful ending can make a book that might not have stuck with you so much really stay with you. And, and, and that's how it was uh, with me. And it just kind of haunted me for months after I read it. Mm-hmm. The converse is also true, I find, that you could be reading an amazing book and if it has a disappointing ending, then that's... That's, that's it. That's it. Pan it. Yeah, just <laughs> put it in the bin, yeah. Awful. So obviously, your book, We Have Birds of Uganda, is out in paperback now, so that's really exciting. And it's the kind of book that will do really well for us, particularly in paperback. We are definitely a shop that thrives on paperback fiction. So I'm looking forward to getting it into the hands of our readers. You, have you got any plans to, to write anything else? Or is this you just enjoying the moment with your current book? What's going on? I think the latter and the former a little bit. I mean, I would love to write something else. I need to find the time and the kind of motivation to actually write something else. I have written an essay in a collection of essays by Nigerian authors of this our country and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie is in that in that volume as well. So that's, that was quite a big moment for me. Yeah, having my work alongside someone whose work I'd read growing up and been really amazed by. So that was pretty cool. But I do intend to write something else. I can't lie and say I've put pen to paper yet because I absolutely haven't. But um, you know, when the right idea is there and when the when the time is right, it will happen. Yeah. God willing. You've got quite a lot going on. So that I think that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I think, you know, this this book is rightly deserving of all of the merit that it has received. And um, like I say, I think you'll get in a whole other wave of new readers now that it's out in paperback. So looking forward to hearing what people think about it. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. It's been absolutely lovely chatting to you and best of luck with the paperback publication. Thank you so much. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.